in a series called What is the Gospel? The, the word itself, the word gospel means good news. And so at its essence, that's what we're about. As a church, we're about the good news. There's a lot of bad news in the world, and so I don't even like reading the news, but I do out of just discipline to know what's happening in my world. There is a lot of bad news, but praise be to God that we are the ones, the, the messengers, we are the ones that herald the good news from the king. We're, we're the ambassadors that have the privilege of proclaiming that there is good news, there is hope, there is grace and forgiveness that is offered to us undeserved kindness that we now have because God has made a way through the cross. The gospel itself is the message. It is the message of what? Well, the message of God redeeming the world through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son for his own glory to be displayed. And that's what we're about. We are a gospel-centered church because, quite honestly, nothing else matters. Just this morning, I was talking to my son driving to the zoo, and he's been reading and acts and stuff. Every night he gets his Bible and reads before he goes to bed. Um, he was like, Dad, I'm almost done with the book of Acts. And I was like, oh, great. And he says, uh, Paul went through a lot. And I said, yes, Paul did go through a lot. And so he, he's reading about the beatings and being stoned and the imprisonments and reading about everything that the apostle Paul went through to plant churches and to proclaim the gospel. And I said, hey, I want you to read a verse in Acts that he's already read, but I said, read it again. And it's actually in Acts chapter 20, and it's verse 24, and it's a reminder to me just from this morning. Paul says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus Christ, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And my eight-year-old son says, wow, the idea that one's life is utterly meaningless. Paul says, my life is of no value to me. My life means nothing to me unless I'm proclaiming the gospel. Nothing else matters but the glory of God, knowing Jesus and making him known. And we have been learning about the gospel by looking at a set of four words. We've talked about how the gospel is both personal and it's also cosmic. And so it's personal in that the gospel addresses your personal problems, your personal sin, your personal need for forgiveness. So you as an individual, me as an individual, the gospel is personal. But the gospel also is cosmic. It applies to the entire universe. The gospel is personal and cosmic. It's also the plan that God has to redeem, to restore the entire created order. And so we talk about there's four words for the gospel, and it's personal. What are all those four words? Let's review. This is class on a Friday morning. Four words. What's the first word in the gospel? Now, we are in church, and so it's not hard to guess where we're going to start. What's the starting point? Number one, God. Oh, what a surprise. We're starting with God as we've gathered together to read his word and to have him revealed to us, and then we're going to respond to him. That's what worship is. God reveals, and we respond. And so, number one, what is the gospel? In four words, number one, God. Very good, God. You know, just God. That's, what, that's the first point. What about God? He's the righteous creator. He is good. He's the authority. He's the ultimate just 
judge. He alone gets to judge because he alone is good and he alone is God. So the first word in the gospel is what? God. What's the second word? Man. Just men, right, women? No, mankind. Humanity, all right? Man as in all of humanity. So God, number one. Number two is man. What about man? What about us? We're condemned sinners. I know in our world today, that's not very popular. We don't like to use this kind of language. That's not going to help my self-esteem to call me a condemned sinner. But my self-esteem really isn't that important. What's far more important is what the Bible says about me and you and the rest of humanity. And it says that we have sinned. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all offended God. We have all gone our own way. We've all sought our own idols. We all are selfish. We're condemned sinners. We're accountable to the holy God. So the first word is what? God. Second word? Man. Third word? Christ. Right. Jesus. Messiah. Jesus Christ. What did he do? What's the big deal about Jesus? Why are you here talking about Jesus? He has saved us, exactly. He has redeemed us. He is the glorious redeemer. He was the perfect human. I say was, he was and he lived among us, but he still is human. He still is alive. He's no longer on the earth. Now his spirit is, but he is at the, at the right hand of the Father. But he has not left us as orphans. Yes, he ascended, but he sent us his spirit to be in us, to indwell us, to bind us together, to empower us to proclaim the gospel, to see lives changed for his glory. And so Jesus died on the cross. He was the substitute. He died in your place. So God, man, Jesus, what's the fourth one? Response. Very good. We can't just hear the message. We must respond to it. And what is the response that is required of those that have heard the gospel message. Jesus said it in Mark 1.15, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. And so we are called to respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. That is the response. We must recognize that we are sinners, admit, agree with God that we are sinners, turn away from that sin, and turn to God in complete trust and faith. We must respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. And so God, man, Jesus, response. You got it? Okay, good. Write it down. Remember, there's four words. It's not hard. But the thing is, if you don't know these four words, when you go talk to your friends and I say when, not if, because the assumption is that if you're at ECC off-island, and you're hearing these things every Friday morning that I'm praying, and I really do pray that God will stir in your heart and that you will share with your friends and neighbors and coworkers. And if you don't know what you're talking about, it's not going to be very effective. And so when you're sharing with your, the people in your world, think God, man, Christ, response. Think through that as you're sharing the gospel. So that's how it applies to us personally. We'll review again next week. Yeah, so make sure you're learning these four words. Write them down. But the gospel is also cosmic. It's also universal. It applies to all of God's creation. Those four words are what? Do you remember? Creation, fall, 
God created, right? God is a creator. He made everything, and it was all good. But then what happened? Humans did what? We sinned. We rebelled. We were made as his image bearers to represent God in this world as kings and queens under the ultimate king's authority, clearly. But we reflect him. We are his image bearers. We are his representatives on this earth designed to rule the earth under his authority for his glory But humans rebelled. We committed high treason. We broke his law, broke the relationship. That's what sin is. And so creation, God made it good. Fall, number two, we made it fall. Don't blame God for the problems that you have. It's a result of a fallen world. Too often we blame God, but it's not his fault. We sinned. We brought corruption upon this world, and now there's disease and pain and death and divorce and all of the horrors of this existence. Creation, fall, what's the third one? Redemption. Creation, number one. Fall, number two. Number three is redemption. That's why God sent Jesus to redeem, to restore, to take the brokenness of this world and to restore it back to how it was in the Garden of Eden. So that is the plan. God is restoring, and we are a glimpse of that when we love each other, when we show the world that we are different because we have been transformed by the power of the gospel. People around us see a glimpse of what God is doing. He is recreating this world for his own glory. He's restoring, redeeming it so that it's back to how it was in the garden. And then number four, consummation, creation, fall, redemption through Christ on the cross, and number four, consummation. God's going to complete the plan, and this earth will be recreated, and it'll be the Garden of Eden all over again, but this time the whole planet, and we will still have physical bodies. You will still be you. You will still sound like you, look like you, but you will be you with no more sin. Just like this world will be similar to how it is now, there's still going to be trees, there's still going to be animals, it's still going to be earth, it's just with humans that have different ethnicities and languages, but without sin, restored to what it was in the beginning. God, that is God's plan, that is the gospel. So it's God, man, Christ, response for you personally, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation as it applies to all of God's creation. So that's where we've been, we've been talking about what the gospel is We're talking about why it matters. Why does it even matter? Does this make a difference? Yes, it does. We've applied it in the last few weeks briefly even just to your behavior and how the gospel will radically transform your behavior. We talk about your daily work and how the gospel must transform how you work, how you approach life every day. We talk about your identity and how, how you see yourself is transformed by the gospel. We've talked about your relationships last week and how God has shown us grace And so now we must show grace to others. And so we have been learning how the gospel applies and should impact every single area of our lives. Too many people approach the gospel as though it's just religion. It's just some vague religious theoretical thought that we think about maybe on Friday morning, but never again and makes no impact. And that is not the goal. That is not what it's about. The gospel is how you begin but also how you continue and grow in your faith. And it's all about the gospel. Now, last week, catch up to speed, we talked about two 
visible signs of the gospel. In this series, the learning of what the gospel is and how it's personal, how it's cosmic. Last week we learned about the gospel, how there's two visible signs of the gospel. There's these two pictures that Jesus gave us that lets us see the gospel. What are they? You remember? If you are here last week, we preached on communion, right? Like, oh yeah, that was like a week ago. I already forgot. Well, if you write it down, it'll help you remember. That's why you'll see in our notes, it says, sermon notes, so you can write stuff down because you're going to forget in 72 hours, and I'm aware of that. But if you write it down, you have a much better chance of remembering beyond 72 hours, beyond like, you know, Tuesday. So here's the point. We talk about that there's two signs of the gospel. The first one is communion, the Lord's table. We talked about last week how the bread symbolizes the body of Christ and the cup represents the blood of Christ. And so you see the gospel. We proclaim the gospel when we take of the Lord's table in communion. But there's a second picture of the gospel that is baptism. We're talking about that today. We're talking about the other ordinance. There's two ordinances. Some churches call them sacraments. It's not a bad word. Sacrament comes from the Latin word for mystery, that there's a mysterious union. And so not that I have a problem with the word sacrament. It's not an evil word. But we prefer the word ordinance in our church because it's emphasizing the reality that Christ has ordained that the church picture the gospel, sign the gospel with Lord's Supper and baptism. And so Jesus has commanded us to do this. He said, go make disciples and baptize them. He said, as you do this as you remember me. And so he's told us to do it. And so we as a church are choosing to use the word ordinance because it emphasizes who ordained us to use these two symbols on a regular basis. Now, it's very important that we remember that these two symbols of the gospel, these pictures that they, that they visualize the gospel of communion and baptism, both of these, listen, it's important, do not save you. The Eucharist, as some traditions call it, that just means thanksgiving. Is that a bad word? No. Of course, we should be grateful. But there are other traditions in, in the greater, if you want to call it, Christianity umbrella that will teach that both of these, quote, sacraments, as they refer to them, communion and baptism, are a, quote, means of grace, that they contribute to your salvation. We do not believe that is in the Bible. And when you read it, you won't find it in the Bible. The means of grace is the work of Christ on the cross. The only means of grace that you need is Christ crucified and your response, which is, I've talked about faith and repentance. And so rituals don't add any extra saving power. You don't, that's not what they're about. These symbols are external demonstrations of an internal reality. So what God has done internally, spiritually, saving because of your faith alone, is demonstrated by baptism and communion. So external pictures of an internal reality. Don't save you, but they show that you have been saved. Critical that we understand this. In these days in our church, it's, this is my first year. I just got here in May, so less than a year in. I want to make sure that as a church we know what we believe and why we believe it. To me, this is foundational. So let's look in the book of Colossians, chapter 2. 
as we're going to read one of the most significant passages that describe exactly what baptism is. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. It's talking about Jesus. So in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. Before I even comment on Colossians 2, I want to just say something that to me is critical, that is kind of the elephant in the room. I love saying, look, there's the elephant. Everyone's like, I don't want to talk about the elephant, and it's awkward, and I don't like having the big elephant in the room that everyone sees and no one talks about. This is a very diverse church, which to me is beautiful. And that's what God used to really draw me to the UAE and to leave the comforts of Texas, you know, the promised land, um, to leave, um, to go to a foreign land. What drew me here was the diversity. That's, what, that's why God brought me here. I love diversity. It's beautiful. It reflects the beauty and glory and creativity of our God who delights in diversity. God made this church. He's assembled the people from all the four corners of the world here. And so I, I believe I'm on very firm, stable footing when I say that God loves the diversity in the room. He loves it. But with that said, let's not be naive or simplistic in our thinking. When you have a church like ours, that's diverse, that people from all over the world with different traditions, not just different languages, but I'm talking different church backgrounds, you're going to have different people that will believe on things like baptism and approach it differently. And so I, I'm not naive. I'm quite aware that there are many of you in the room that are not going to agree with what I'm going to say this morning. There are some of you that talk to you in private that you think baptism is a little bit different and, and you have a different background that you kind of grew up with. And so here's my point when it comes to churches like ours that have a very diverse background. A lot of churches like ours get very nervous. And they don't want to talk about things that will be uncomfortable. And they would rather not address things like baptism because people have different thoughts and different backgrounds and different traditions and wouldn't want to offend anyone. And so we say, no, baptism is just not that important. We will leave it on the outside. We won't ever talk about it because we don't want to offend anyone or make anyone be uncomfortable because they have a different background or thought about this. You see, but see, here's the thing. I believe that ignoring topics, intentionally ignoring topics that are taught in the Bible that are part of the, the mission that Jesus gave us, when we ignore topics, we're not pleasing God. I, I have two thoughts in regards to churches that tend to ignore topics because they're uncomfortable. My first thought is this, that diversity is not a dilemma. It's not. 
diversity is not a problem we have to overcome. You know what, you know what diversity is for us? An opportunity. An opportunity for us to display the beauty and the grace and the love and the unity of God. God is not fractured. He is a trinity, and he is in perfect harmony, and he has unity, and he wants us to reflect that and have, also have unity, to be humble and to not be fractured. And so I don't see diversity as a dilemma to overcome. I see it as an opportunity to display God's glory and his love. And so the key for us as a church is to have unity. And so I believe that we must talk about these things that are difficult. But the second thought on this is we cannot be a healthy, gospel-centered church if we blatantly ignore topics that are in the Bible. We can't. There's no way God's going to bless us and honor us if we are too afraid or too nervous to talk about things from the Bible. And so we're going to do it today. We're, we're going to balance grace and truth as we do with everything. We must speak truth, but do so with grace. And so that is our goal whenever we talk about anything to anyone, because that's what Jesus was, grace and truth. And so let me read to you out of the church statement of beliefs. All right, This is what our church has believed, ratified in, in our constitution. It says that we believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are the two ordinances administered by the church. Water baptism is the act by which the believer pictures his identification with Christ Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. So that is what we as a church believe. Let me expound on that for the next few minutes so that we all understand what our church believes as a core conviction about what baptism is. Five questions. I'm not going to take five hours. It'll be a few minutes per each question. But five basic questions on what baptism is. What, is. what is the significance of baptism? First question is what? Simple, right? What? Well, what is the meaning of baptism? Well, we just read in Colossians chapter 2 that baptism is a picture of the gospel. And so when a believer is baptized, they are in fact proclaiming the very gospel. Let's read it again. Colossians 2 Verses 11 and 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through the faith, through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So allow me to identify several key words and phrases in these two verses, and then we'll break them down, connect the dots, and understand what this means. The first key word is circumcision. It's mentioned here more than once. And so what is circumcision? If you're new to church, you're like, well, I know what circumcision is. We're all adults in here, but I don't know why that's in the Bible. I'm not really sure what that's all about. Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, in the very beginning, when God first spoke to Abraham, was reaffirmed with Moses. And so in the Old Testament, when God revealed himself to his people, he gave Old Testament Israel a, a sign, a physical, now of course it was private, but it was still a mark on the body, a physical sign that they were a member of God's covenant community. 
So God made a covenant. He, he entered into a relationship with the nation of Israel. If you want to read about that, read in Exodus 19 and 20. It describes where Israelites came out of slavery and in this mountain where God revealed himself, they entered into a covenant, into a relationship with God. And he gave them the Ten Commandments and then many other laws to say, well, this is what it looks like to be in a relationship with me. And so circumcision was the Old Testament sign, so the outward sign of being part of the faith family of God. It was a way of God saying, you, my people, are different. You are taken and set apart from the rest of the nations. Other nations don't do circumcision, but you do. You are different. You are set apart. You are holy because I am holy and we are in a relationship together. And so circumcision was one powerful way. It was an external symbol for them to show that they were part of God's community. And so it says here, circumcision, next key phrase, a circumcision made without hands. And so this is clearly not physical because you have to use hands to the circumcision. And so in, in Colossians 2, it says circumcision without hands. It's therefore speaking about something spiritual. So a spiritual reality. So he's saying that those that are following Jesus have a spiritual sign, a spiritual way of being marked, not physical, spiritual, that they belong to God's people. And then it says circumcision of Christ. And so you have circumcision without hands and one, a circumcision of Christ, Paul says in Colossians 2. And so the work of Jesus on the cross is referred to as a circumcision. Next, it says baptism. So that's the next key word there. It says baptism. And so he is connecting circumcision, and he's even connecting resurrection with baptism. Because it says, and you were raised with him through faith. So it says that you were dead spiritually, and you've been resurrected on the inside through faith. And he's connecting that with baptism. And so you're thinking, well, I have a lot of these random thoughts, but I'm not sure how all of this fits together. Well, let's just try to understand, and you will see that these are all connected, and it all points to baptism and who we are every day as we follow Jesus. First of all, in regards to circumcision in the Old Testament, let's just kind of start there with the first word that Paul uses. It was always meant to be an outward sign of an inward transformed heart because this is very important religious rituals never have and never will be able to save someone religious rituals have no power to save anyone and that included the one God gave the Israelites of circumcision it had no power to save them if you read in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 this was written by Moses the prophet in the Old Testament when they had just become the people of God. And so in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, it says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Circumcise your heart. And be no longer stubborn. Now, some of you parents are thinking, Man, my kids need to read this. And be no longer stubborn. Well, yes, that's probably true for moms and dads in the room, but that's also true for you and me. 
we too need to no longer be stubborn. But the key here is in Deuteronomy, already Old Testament, Moses, he is saying, circumcise your heart. And it was rephrased years later under the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 4, verse 4, Jeremiah the prophet says that they will come. One day, God will circumcise your hearts, and he's going to change your heart radically. And, and Shirley read for us earlier in the scripture reading part of our worship gathering, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 30. These verses were describing, so we read those earlier. It describes circumcision. I'll read to you verse 6 in Deuteronomy 30. It says, the Lord your God, listen, he will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That was a promise. It was a prophecy that one day God would do something in the future that would change people's hearts, that he would circumcise hearts. To do what? To enable God's people to love God. Let me ask you a question this morning. I know it's very easy to sit here. You can kind of get dressed up. We're a very casual church, and I like that. But still, you know, you fix your hair, and, and you get dressed, and you put on makeup, and you go to church, and everyone, and everyone thinks you look good, and you're smiling. Yeah, it's good to see you. And we all can lie to each other so easily. So easy. We can all fake it. You know what happens, though? Life gets hard. All of a sudden, life kicks you in the teeth. All of a sudden, you get knocked down. All of a sudden, you get that phone call that you can't imagine you would have ever received. All of a sudden, you're diagnosed with something that you can't imagine now you have. When life gets difficult, and because we're, again, back to the gospel, because we're in a fallen world, it will get difficult. And some of you know what I'm talking about right now because you're in that valley. Some of you are on the mountaintop. Praise God for that. But guess what's around the corner? A valley. That's the life. Peaks and valleys. That's how life is. And that's just a fallen world. And so here's the thing. We can give our hearts to many other things when life gets difficult. We, we can delight in many other things. We can find comfort in many other things or find security in many different things. And so the point here is do you love God? Now, it's easy to say that you love God, but I'm, what I'm asking is with all of your heart, where is your comfort? Where do you, where do you turn to for comfort? When you're down, when you're depressed, when you're sad, when you're alone, where do you turn to for your source of comfort? Where do you turn to for your source of joy? Where do you turn to for security? Where do you turn to for your, quote, release? You see, these are the kind of questions that we have to really consider because that's the point of worship, is having a greater passion for Jesus than anything else, loving him more, having our soul so captivated by the beauty of Jesus as seen through the gospel, that he is our joy, he is our hope, he is our everything. And so the point of circumcision is that it was a sign, an outward sign of God on the inside changing people's hearts to have a passion for him. 
Circumcision never saved anyone. It never was supposed to save anyone. It was simply supposed to be a sign pointing to it. So what are we satisfied in? Because the truth is, whatever you can find your joy in can be taken away from you quite easily. And so we must not find our satisfaction in things that are too finite. Anything short of Jesus is finite. It's going to end or be lost or broken or whatever. And I'll share a story. My son is going to be embarrassed, so don't tell Joshua about this story. But eight-year-old son, it's funny, today twice in one message, but it's his fault because he talks about things, and so it comes up. It's applicable. Last night, he lost his flashlight, which an eight-year-old boy is crushing because his friend, Mr. Tim Ike, member of our church, he's not even here today, it's funny, his friend Tim gave him this flashlight. And so it was a combination of a friend gave it to him, plus he loved his little LED flashlight, playing with it last night, and he lost it. And so at bedtime last night, he was just so torn up, and he was, he was in tears, and he lost his prized possession. He lost his flashlight. And so I, so I said, okay, Josh, there's two things here. Mom was holding him, but I was like, all right, two things. One is, to be very frank with you, you can't love possessions more than anything else. You can't. You, you can't find this much delight in possessions because you're going to lose them. It's going to happen. And so let's use this as an opportunity for you to learn that if you're putting this much of yourself and this much joy in a flashlight, then you're going to be let down. It's going to happen because you're going to lose it or break or whatever eventually. I said, secondly, be a better steward. Take care of your things. And so learn so that in the future you won't lose your things. And so we need to love, I told him, love the giver more than the gift. And we tend to love the gifts more than the giver. And so we prayed, and he got his composure back, and it was a teachable moment for him. And I'll buy him a new flashlight, no worries. I'll probably talk to Tim. He'll probably get him a new one and replace it. But the point is that we have to learn this lesson of having more of our joy in Jesus than anything else because anything else won't satisfy. And circumcision was meant to be a sign that pointed to that. And so Old Testament circumcision pointed to and is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilled this Old Testament circumcision. You're thinking, well, how so? In this passage, it says circumcision of Christ. You see, Jesus' death on the cross, in a very real way, God cut off Christ's bodily life. Just like in the Old Testament, the foreskin was cut off of a little boy who was eight days old. Well, that was pointing to Jesus on the cross. It was a foreshadowing, pointing to Christ crucified, where the life of Jesus was cut off. But he didn't stay dead. He was resurrected. He's alive today. He's fulfilled all of the Old Testament laws and expectations. It all is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so circumcision was meant to point to the work of Christ on the cross, which is why we don't practice circumcision for spiritual reasons. If you want health, whatever, that's up to you. But we don't do it for spiritual reasons because Christ has fulfilled that, a circumcision of Christ. And so baptism is connected here because now baptism has replaced 
circumcision as the external sign of the internal reality. And so in the Old Testament, circumcision was that sign. Now for us today, now that Christ has come, died, resurrected, now baptism is the new sign that God has given to us that represents his reality. Well, why is that? Why has baptism replaced circumcision? Verse 13 tells us. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. See, this is remarkable. It says that people who don't believe in Jesus are dead spiritually. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. The Bible is very honest. It says that you, if you're here today and, and you've never repented and believed in Jesus, the Bible says that on the inside you're spiritually dead and that you don't know God and that you're going to try to make sense of life on your own and it's not going to work out. And I'm just a messenger. I would, can I tell you, I would never write this. Never in my mind would I ever write something so condemning of fellow humans, but I didn't write this. God did. And he's being honest about us. And he says that what we need most is a heart transplant. Not self-help books, not anything else that we can turn to. What we need is a radical transformation we need is a resurrection. And that's why he says in this very same sentence, we have been made alive together with him. You see, you and I are sinners and we're spiritually dead, but Jesus died on the cross, was resurrected, and just like you and I were spiritually dead, when on that day when someone told you you were a sinner, believe in Jesus, and you felt convicted and you said, oh my God, that's true and you believed, and you repented, and you put your faith in Jesus, at that second, the Spirit of God came inside of you. You were resurrected on the inside, and that's why you sense that burden of sin lifted off of you on that moment. Because you were transformed, you were resurrected. That's, what, that's the reason why rituals and religion don't work. Because rituals and religion keep things on the surface level and trying to improve and make you a better person. And, and the Bible says, no, you can't be a better person until you're resurrected. And that's what God specializes in. If you are here and you think, man, my situation is dead. My marriage is dead. This problem, there's just no way. It's too big. Well, what you need is the resurrection. And here's the beauty. We have a God who specializes in resurrections. That's what he does. That's the specialty. He resurrects the dead. He did it with his son. He's done it with you spiritually. And he'll do it for us after we die physically. We too will be resurrected physically to live for eternity on the restored new heavens and new earth. How could a good God do this? How could a good and righteous and just judge, how can a good judge do this? I mean, think about it. If, if a judge is good, can he just let a convicted criminal go free? I mean, you have to stop for a second. And, and we, we bask in the glory of resurrection and of what God's done in his grace. But think for a second. 
How can a good judge allow this? A good judge would not allow a convicted criminal to go free. A good judge would uphold the law. A good judge would make a criminal pay. That's what a good judge does. A bad judge, an evil judge, would let a criminal go free. And so when God looks at you, and we can talk about the beauty of resurrection, and we need to, but understand the significance here. The fact that God can allow a sinner to be resurrected, a sinner to be pardoned, and to even go to heaven would seem to go against his very nature as a holy God. And in a sense it does, which is why someone had to pay for our sins. And verse 14 describes that. It's beautiful. It says, and God, he says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. I want to stop there for a second. It says, the record of debt that stands against you with legal demands. There is a record of debt. Picture a judge sitting at his bench, sit, sitting there, and you're on trial. How can this good judge just let you go? There's a record. There's a list of charges that are weighed against you and against me. We have broken God's laws. We stand convicted, and this good judge will not let you go. He, we must pay the penalty. But it says that he's forgiven us, and it says that he's canceled record of debt. How could a good judge then maintain his goodness by letting a criminal go? It says this, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He took your record of debt, your sinfulness, and he held up his legal document. He held it up to his son on the cross, and he nailed it through his son's hands into the cross itself. That's what God did. He took the record of your debt, and he nailed it to the cross. Someone had to pay. Jesus paid. That's the point of the cross. This is the gospel. And we focus so much on God's grace, and we absolutely need to, but God's grace makes no sense unless we understand our sin and that we've broken his laws. And when we understand our sinfulness, then God's grace truly is amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. His grace is absolutely incredible. Jesus paid for you and for me. And that's what baptism demonstrates. When you go under the water, so into the water is death. Jesus dying on the cross in your place. You, spiritually dead. So under the water represents death. A watery grave. But then he pull you up out of the water. And that represents resurrection. Jesus didn't stay dead. He paid the penalty. He paid for your sins. But he was resurrected, and on the day when you believe, you will be or you have been resurrected spiritually. And so that's the point of baptism. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It, so when you get baptized, you're actually proclaiming the gospel. You are saying something. So what is baptism? It's the picture of death and resurrection. It's a picture of the gospel. So quickly, before time totally expires. Why? 
Why should I be baptized? Okay, what is it? Picture of the gospel itself. Why should I get baptized? Well, let me just say this to remind you. Baptism does not, cannot save you. So you're thinking, well, why bother if I don't need it? Well, you actually don't need to be baptized to be a believer in Jesus. Think back to Jesus crucified. There was a man on his side, a thief. Luke 23 describes this. And this thief on the cross turned to Jesus and he says, remember me. He repented of his sins. He believed in Jesus. And Jesus told this criminal on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And that man died that day and we can meet him one day in heaven. That man was not baptized. He was on the cross. He died a few hours later. He went to heaven. And so clearly, you don't need to be baptized to be a believer in Jesus or to be saved. And so, well, why do it? I'm going to give you three brief reasons why you should be baptized. One, follow the example of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3 describes that Jesus was baptized. He didn't need to be because he was going to do the ultimate reality on the cross. But what he did is he gave us an example. He gave us the example of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to portray my death and my resurrection, and then I'm going to do it three years later. Follow my example. He was giving us examples to follow. Second reason is to obey the commandment of Jesus. Jesus told us, Matthew 28, go make disciples and baptize them. And so this is a commandment. This is not optional for a believer. And so follow his example, follow his commandment. And number three, proclaim the gospel. When you get baptized, I hope you'll bring your friends. I hope your friends who don't know Jesus will be there. And they can see you get in the water. And they can see the picture of the gospel. So that's what we want, is for you to proclaim the gospel in a very visible, tangible way. So when you get baptized, think of it kind of like your wedding day, all right? When you got married, most of you, I'm sure, unless you eloped, but most of you probably had all your friends and family there, right? You stood in front of a pastor or someone, and you said some things. You said that you would be committed to him or to her, right? For better or worse and so forth. And so most people have a ceremony of some kind when they get married. And then you do something. You put on the ring, right? In most cultures, some put it on their toes, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is that you, you have some kind of a visible demonstration that you belong to someone. You see, I wasn't ashamed of my wife of over 12 years ago. I was proud for everyone to see her in all of her splendor and beauty. I was proud to say, I will commit myself to you for better or worse, for sickness or in health, richer or poor. I'm here. I love you. I think you're amazing, and I want to live my life with you. And so I don't care who knows it. I'm not ashamed of her. And then I wear this ring. And when I wear this ring, I'm saying something. I'm taken. Sorry, ladies, I'm taken. My heart belongs to someone. A beautiful five-foot-three blonde. My heart belongs to her. And this ring is a symbol that I'm taken, that my heart has been captivated by the beauty, and I love her. And I'm not ashamed. That's what baptism is. You're saying, I'm going public. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. My heart belongs to him. He bought me. He died for me. He's resurrected me. He's given me purpose and hope and a future and significance. And he's everything to me. 
And so I don't care who knows it. I want everyone to know. Which is why in many parts of this world, when someone receives Christ, it's bad for them. But if they get baptized, they're going to die. There are places in this world where if someone receives Christ, they might lose their job, get them out of the family. I mean, it's not good for them to receive Christ. It's bad. But until they get in the water, and, and when they make that faith public, they have in many places, in many instances, they have just signed their own death sentence because their family or someone else is going to kill them because of what baptism signifies. It is saying, I'm going public. I am not ashamed. I want everyone to know. It's important. Who should do it? So what is it? Picture the gospel. Why? Because Jesus told us to, and we can tell the world. How? Well, who, rather, first, and then how? Who? Who should be baptized? Anyone that has shown complete faith and trust in Jesus. That's who should do it. You see, baptism is a decisive transition. You're saying, I was dead. The old person is now dead. Now I'm a new person. Like it says in, in Romans 6, 4, to walk in the newness of life. And so baptism shows this newness that you're changed and you now love Jesus and your heart is told different now. And so who should be baptized? Anyone that has responded to the gospel, anyone that has repented and believed in Jesus should be baptized. That's who should be baptized. And why do I say that? Because that's what you see in the New Testament. It's a visible sign of being a member of God's family. So baptism doesn't save you. It shows that you have been, so that you're part of the community of faith. Now, there are some traditions, and, and I know some of you come from that tradition, where you baptize an infant, where you take a little baby, and you, you, you don't, like, submerge them. You just pour some water on their head, but... But you, but you do a baptism for an infant, and in some traditions, that is actually supposedly saves that baby, takes original sin. Well, I, we don't agree with that at all. That's not in the Bible. But there are other traditions, more Protestant mainland traditions, that do talk about baptizing an infant. Now, not to save the baby, but it's to show that that baby is a part of the greater community of faith. And so they're saying, as parents, we are setting this child apart to be part of the overall family of God until that child grows up and can on his or her own profess faith in Jesus, their own personal saving faith in Jesus. And so they're affirming that faith in Jesus saves the person, but the infant baptism just marks them off as being part of the covenant community of God. Now, in the way that kind of makes sense, I'm not saying that's evil. Is there anything wrong with parents having a ritual that is very meaningful? The family all gets together, and, and the child is said, okay, we commit as parents to raise this child in the faith. Is that, is that an evil thing to do? Is that wrong? No, it's not bad. It's not wrong. There's only one little thing about that. It's not in here. It's not in the Bible. The Bible does not describe a parent committing to raise their child as baptism. There are exactly zero examples of that in here. Zero. 
But what you do have is many, many, many examples. Read Acts, just keeping one, one book, of someone receives Jesus, they repent of their sins, and someone that understands what baptism is, and then they get baptized. You see, when you baptize an infant, what you're doing is you're kind of removing the whole point of baptism in the first place, which is an external sign of the internal transformation that gospel brings. An infant can understand that. An infant can't repent and believe in the gospel. And so since an infant cannot do that, what's happening in this ritual cannot be considered believers most biblically baptism. It's, an, it's a significant ritual. I'm, I'm not saying that you should repudiate that. But it's not biblical baptism because biblically it's a believer's baptism. And so next question quickly here, how? How should I be baptized? As a church, we believe that the most biblical way to baptize is by immersion. Well, why do we say that? Well, the word itself means to immerse. So the word baptism means to immerse. And so not that sprinkling or, or pouring, you know, is evil. I'm not saying that. But, but the word baptizo in the, in the Greek, baptism, means to immerse in. And Jesus was baptized that way. Well, how do I know? If you read Mark 1, verse 10, it says that he was baptized in the Jordan River. So he was in a river, and it says that he came up out of the water. So he came up out of the water. And so you can't come up out of a little pool where they're pouring water on your head. It had to be he was in the water to come up out of it in the Jordan River. And so Jesus was immersed, and so that's why we immerse. But the book of Acts describes it repeatedly that the early church leaders baptized by immersion and, and most significantly, besides Christ did it that way, and I, I want to be like Jesus, and so I want to get baptized how he was baptized. But beyond that, if you think about the picture of what it symbolizes out of Colossians 2 and out of Romans chapter 3, I mean 6, verses 3 and 4, it describes that this is a picture of the gospel of death, burial, and resurrection. And so since baptism is a picture of that, submersion is the best way to illustrate that. So if we pour water on your head, that's not really showing what the gospel is. But when we put you underwater, not for very long, don't worry, I'll, I'll put you back up. But when you go underwater, you are showing death. And you come up out of the water, you're showing a resurrection. And so immersion is the best way to illustrate the gospel. Lastly, when. We talked about who, when, so forth. When. When should I be baptized? I would say as soon as possible. As soon as you have repented and truly believed in the gospel, you can be baptized. That's what you see in the book of Acts. You read, for example, in um, Acts chapter 9, Philip shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch. He receives Christ right there on the road back to Ethiopia. And they stop on the side of the road, and there's just a little body. There's like a pond. There's just a little muddy body of water. And he says, hey, there's some water on the side of the road. Can I get baptized? And Philip says, absolutely. He, they get out of the chariot and they, they just get in the side of the road and get baptized on the, right there. It's amazing. And so that's the point. It, it does, it, it's not where that makes it holy. It doesn't have to be in a sanitized environment. That's, it does it. So where does it matter? It's if you have water, you can get baptized. The act is holy because of what it points to. The place doesn't really matter. When should you do it? March 22nd. 
we're going to have a church baptismal service. And so you have a few weeks. We already have a half dozen people that have received Christ recently in our church that are going to be baptized March 22nd. It's a little bit chilly right now, so we're going to wait a few weeks. Plus, not only that, but we want more people to respond. And if anyone wants to be baptized, you have to talk to an elder so that we can hear your story and make sure you understand what baptism is. And I talked about it this morning, but I don't presume to believe that you heard every word that I just said the last 40 minutes. I know you didn't. I know you checked out for part of it. You thought about lunch, or you thought about yesterday, or you fight with your wife last night, or whatever. And so hopefully you were engaged, but I understand the reality of preaching that not everyone gets everything that was said. So I know this is just the overall teaching on it, but we want to make sure that anyone that we baptize as a church really has believed in Christ and understands what it means. And so we want to talk to you. And so we'll arrange a casual meeting, much like we do if you want to be a member. If you want to join our faith family as a committed member, we want to talk to you so that you know what we're about, so that we can hear your story and get to know you better as a, as a church member. So we want to baptize too. So I mentioned this earlier, but if you look, you'll notice on these little forms that all of you should have one. You got it in the bulletin. You'll notice in the front, it says, I mentioned information about getting baptized. If you would like to get baptized on March 22nd with others in our faith family, check that box. And we'll call you this week, make an appointment, and we'll talk to you about it more. Maybe you say, I want to be a member. This is my faith family. I want to say, I'm committed. This is it. I want to... I want to grow here. I want to have influence here. I want to have community here. Well, then check off that box, and we'll meet with you. An elder will then we'll talk about your membership. If you want to serve or whatever, you can do that. If you're here today and you say, you know what, I've never, I've never thought about this before. I just have questions about the gospel. Well, check that box. An elder will call you. We'll talk to you. We'll help you. Fill out the card. This is important. It's not just a sheet of paper. It's a way for us to get to know you and to talk about it and to get you scheduled so that you too can follow Christ in baptism. This is, it's a symbol. It's a powerful symbol of what we believe. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads in this moment and I'm going to call the worship team to come up to the front. I mentioned earlier that worship at its, at its essence is revelation and response, that God reveals himself. He has revealed himself in song and in word, through his word. And so the question is, have, have you responded to Jesus? Have you responded to the gospel? If you even right now know that you've never repented and believed in the gospel, you can do so today. You can ask God to forgive you. You can ask Jesus to save you. He will. You have to repent, turn away from your sin, and turn towards him. And if as we speak, if, if you're grappling with that, if you want to receive Christ, you can do so today. Or just check that box on your card, and we'll call you and meet this week. We have a welcome team at the back, back of the hall. There's several people that want to take that card from you, and you can hand it to one of those people in the back. We'll follow up with you. Father, we thank you for giving us this time to truly consider what it means to follow you. 
We thank you, Father, that we, we realize that we are sinners. We realize that we need you. We recognize that we have sinned, we have broken your laws, we have offended you, and that on the inside that we are dead and we need a resurrection. We know, Father, that it's only through your grace that we can be transformed. And I pray for anyone here in this room that for the first time has understood baptism or even following you, Jesus, I pray that you would work in their hearts, that they would just fill out the cards so we can follow up with them and talk to them more. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be a church that is focused on your gospel, nothing else, on your beauty and your glory, making you known to this community. We thank you for baptism, for what it represents, a powerful picture of your gospel. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. We pray in his name.